we're moving on from that eternal dating and romance series that I put you through. And uh, <laughs> now we're moving on to a new set of talks about a book of the Bible that some of y'all may not be super familiar with. Uh, it's a book of the Bible called Hebrews. And um, I'm going to just read a portion of this book, the very first few verses of this book, just to start this series and kind of get us going. This, what I'm about to read is on the study guides I mentioned, what's going to be on the screen behind me. Or, of course, if you have one of these books uh, called the Bible, you, you can just, uh, wow, mine's got a little problem there. You can, <laughs> it's well-worn. You can just, uh, you can open it to Hebrews uh, chapter 1. And uh, this might feel a little bit different if all you know about the story is that we sit around and talk about dating. If you came <laughs> into the story for the first time during our dating series, we're going to learn more about the Bible, the New Testament, why it has the shelf life that it has. Does it really mean anything anymore? Is it relevant? Particularly this book of Hebrews, I think, uh, we'll find enlightening. So first, uh, four verses of the first chapter of Hebrews. Here we go. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became much superior, as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to them. This series is called Jesus is Better. Every single week, we're, we're going to be doing this for like eight weeks, every single week, this author of Hebrews uh, compares Jesus to something or someone else and says Jesus is better. And the idea that Jesus is better might be offensive or difficult for some of y'all to stomach because you like to think of all religions as equal and all paths as leading to the same place. And that's not exactly how it works, not just from a Christian worldview, but just from a logical standpoint. You can't really say they all say the same things and they all lead to the same place and all that stuff. And uh, Hebrews kind of breaks down why Jesus is different. This isn't the same thing as saying Jesus, you know, being a, a born-again Christian in this life is the only way to know God, you know, in heaven forever. That's different. That's a different issue. But, um, but, but we want to be honest about the claims Jesus makes and what sets him apart. Now, um, my, my thinking here is that about half of you are probably somewhat familiar with Hebrews. Some of you uh, maybe not at all. Um, and so before really getting into this word, I just, I just want to give a little bit of a confession. And this isn't easy for me to say because the reason I became a pastor is because I'd rather hear confessions than give them. So uh, I, like, I don't mind y'all confessing, but when I got to confess, this is, a, this is a different deal. One of my biggest, probably my biggest spiritual struggle has to do with anxiety. And there's different kinds of anxiety. I know I, some of you all have anxiety disorders that are diagnosed and you're medicated and, and you've had to seek help because that is some serious business. Mine's not quite like that. I don't have irrational fears about things or I don't have an obsession about death or anything like that. Uh, my anxiety is entirely wrapped up in feelings of inadequacy. 
And when I say inadequacy, I don't necessarily mean a lack of self-esteem. Those who know me well know me. I could probably know that I could probably uh, deal with a little bit less self-esteem than I, I actually have. Uh, I have plenty of self-esteem. I'm pretty comfortable with who I am in here. But here's the deal. When I stack up who I am in here against all there is to do out there, when I stack up who I am in here against all there is to be accomplished, all the needs to be met out there, if I think about that too long, that's when the inadequacy seeps in. And the inadequacy of that renders you paralyzed, powerless in the face of it, you know, especially for someone with my personality type. Some of y'all might not relate to this. Some of you will. I am 100% a people person. I want to make people happy. I think that's why I was made is to serve people and make them happy. Nothing makes me happier. I do not like being served. I just want to serve. That's how I'm wired. I'm not bragging about it. That's just how I am. It starts at home. I want to serve my wife. I want to love her. I want to make her happy. Now, it's not always healthy because I know this is not always healthy and it's not always entirely benevolent or generous because I will get mad at her if she gets in the way of me making her happy. You get what I'm saying? Like, it's pretty sick when you think about it. Like, I'm not saying I'm a saint or anything. I'm just saying this is how I'm wired. I want to please people and make them happy and serve them. I want to love her well. I want to love my kids well. I want to love my daughter so well that no teenage pimple-faced punk will ever measure up. I want her to have such high expectations expectations for how she should be loved that she's not going to date till she's 37 or something like that's my goal I want to love my son so well that he's going to become a man who loves his family even better than his dad does I want to love their mama so well that even when even when we're fighting even when things are rocky and things aren't good you know like in any marriage even in those moments I want them to see Jesus in us like I just want that kind of harmony that kind of beauty in our home. And it bleeds out of the home as well. And those of you that struggle with this same combination of, of insecurity or, or uh, anxiety and, and feelings of inadequacy will, will understand that it goes outside the home to the workplace. And some of y'all have normal jobs, oil and gas or whatever everybody else does. And every, y'all either do oil and gas or medicine. I'm on to you now. Like that's all there is. And, uh, and, and my job is church, which is a little different. Uh, adds some elements like I don't think y'all probably, most of you, love your coworkers like I love y'all. Like, it's just a different deal, right? Gio and I are obsessed with y'all. Like, y'all don't even really know. And I'm not saying it's, it's not like we don't need to be venerated or, like, patted on the back. I'm just saying we do sit around and think and talk about y'all in a good way most of the time, all the time. And... We want what's best for you, and, like, we want to lead this community well. We have such a burden to lead this community well, to lead this community in such a way that it doesn't become some kind of a cult of personality that's all about the one in the spotlight or all about one person or anything like that. That We're a community, a movement that's raising up leaders who raise up leaders who make disciples and change the world. Like, that's what our aim is. We think that's what God's up to here. But, man, it's a blessing, but it's a burden. Because pretty much every night we put the kids to bed and uh, immediately we grab our laptops, our Bibles, and, and we get 
to work and uh, we go to bed, husband and wife, laptops, Bibles, highly romantic, you know, it's like passing out uh, through exhaustion at 11, 11.30 at night, waking up at five o'clock in the morning because we got emails to write and prayers to write and sermons to write and devotionals to write and we want to get it all done before the kids get up and the kids get up at six and we act like we're happy to see them even though we wish they would have given us a little more time to get it all done because we're not done yet, like, yay, good morning, God, you know, that kind of a thing and, and, and then, you know, you, you go through routine and, um, man, but it just never seems like it's enough. And then you've got all the other stuff that all of y'all deal with too. We've got to keep the house clean, relatively clean, livable. <laughs> we've got to manage, maintain the cars. We've got to get groceries, school supplies, because school starts tomorrow. Hallelujah. We've got clothes to get. We've got to pay our bills. We've got to call Comcast again because they charged us, uh, overcharged us again. You know, like that's a weekly ritual at my house. Uh, we've got friends to keep up with. We've got family to keep up with. There's so many means and methods of communication. You've got emails. Y'all don't even want to see my inbox. It's just, it's the worst. My inbox is the worst place on earth. It's hell on earth in my inbox. And you've got Facebook Messenger. You've got all social media platforms. You've got voicemail. If you, you know anybody over 50 that still leaves voicemails, you've got text, email, all of it. And if you're married, you've got to invest in your marriage. If you're a parent, being a good parent isn't enough. Being an adequate parent isn't enough. The Internet says you must be a great parent. Because if you're not a great parent doing everything for your kids that everyone else is doing, then why did you even have kids? It's basically child abuse. If you're not a great parent, according to the Internet. And so uh, it brings up all these feelings of not being enough. Gio and I, I think, are pretty good parents. But what I've realized is that, man, if you pay attention to social media and the, the way people present themselves and their lives and their kids on social media, if you listen to the world, to the internet, it will never be enough. And I find myself, no matter how many books I read to my kids, no matter how much time I spend with my kids, no matter how many toys I give my kids, almost every time I leave their room and walk down the hall, I have this nagging feeling inside of me, this nagging voice that's saying to me, you could have done more. You could have done more. You could have read one more book. They wanted it. Why didn't you? You could have spent a little more time. You could have taught them this one more lesson, you know. You could have done more. I've often wondered if maybe that's what I should have on my tombstone one day. Here lies Eric Huffman. He could have done more. <laughs> and then, and then you lay something like Harvey on top of all that stuff. And what happens? It's this just powder keg time bomb of inadequate feelings. How many of you had a fleeting moment of just utter inadequacy, helplessness as the floodwaters rose? Even if it wasn't your house, you knew your, fr your friends or your family were. It was helpless. It was, just made you feel desperate. And even in the aftermath, you wondered if there was ever a way that you could help enough, serve enough, do enough, give enough. This is my greatest spiritual battle. I know it doesn't sound like much, but it can be crippling. That anxiety, that inadequacy, it's not just psychological. I wish it was. Man, I wish I could just medicate this thing and just be done with it. It's not just sociological. It's not just the pressure of society being enforced on me. It's spiritual, man. It's bad theology that leads to this kind of thing. Because I think wrong about God, I think wrong about myself. If you don't know the, the way to think about God, you're not going to know what to think about yourself. This is deeply, 
theological because when you get God wrong, you get you wrong. That conundrum is why Hebrews was written. Because people were forgetting how to think about God in light of Jesus. People were forgetting how to think about themselves in light of Jesus. So Hebrews is a book shrouded in mystery. It was written over two, or almost 2,000 years ago. It was written in the mid to late first century. And uh, we don't know a lot about Hebrews. It's incredibly mysterious. We know that it was written to an audience of people who were feeling overwhelmed and inadequate in the face of all there was to be done out there. They had these feelings of inadequacy. This writer, this mysterious writer whose name we don't know, we don't know if it was a man or a woman. Some people have supposed maybe it was a woman. Maybe that's why she wanted to remain anonymous. I don't know. I don't have that answer. I don't really care one way or another. But during this series, I'll use uh, male you know, pronouns. That's just out of convenience. I don't know if it was a man or a woman. We don't know a lot. They chose to remain anonymous. All that we know about this author is that he's Jewish and a genius. Off the charts. Hebrews, if you take the rest of the New Testament, and the rest of the New Testament is like a regular regimen of college classes or high school classes. Hebrews is like the AP version. Hebrews is like the GT New Testament book for people that know big words. Hebrews, people read the rest of the New Testament and they're like, I like this Jesus guy. They get to Hebrews and they're like, whoa, whoa, too, too much, too intellectual, too petty. And, and he, he, he's just a genius. He's brilliant in his style. He's highly educated. This writer uses 154 Greek words that are nowhere else in the Bible. This writer introduces 10 words to Greek literature. There's 10 words in Hebrews that never existed in any Greek literature before Hebrews was written. That's pretty impressive if you know anything about the history of Greek literature. And so uh, this this guy is uh, brilliant. He's writing to probably people that he knows, fellow Christians in the city of Jerusalem. Now, some of y'all know this, in the first century, early first century, mid-first century, as the church is taking shape, all the Christians were Jews. Christianity was a sect within Judaism. So uh, I try to think about it this way. Uh, All of the churches met in Jewish houses of worship when the church began. So the churches met in uh, synagogues or in the temple, in the Jerusalem case, in the temple. And if it helps you to conceptualize this. You know how we have Sunday school classes? And we don't, but like in most churches, like you have like rooms where there's Sunday school classes. And you may not know this, but as a preacher, I know this. There's always that one class that just goes rogue. There's that one class that just does its own thing. Like it, they bring their own donuts nobody else can touch. And like they don't have curriculum and they, they're smart enough without curriculum. And they don't stick around for the worship service because they don't like the preacher and they kind of do their own thing anyway. Like there's that one class that everybody kind of looks that funny. I think of the first Christian groups as that class within the synagogues and within the temple. And at first it was totally cool. The Jewish priests, the rabbis, they were cool about it, man. I guess it added to their headcount. If you ever want a preacher to be cool about something, just add to his headcount. Like he'll love you forever, no matter what. Like, like that's what was happening. But there was two things that changed this cozy arrangement the Christians had, uh, the Jewish Christians had with the Jewish houses of worship. First, the Jewish leaders realized that for the Christians, Jesus was not just another rabbi. So it wasn't uncommon for groups of Jews to latch on 
to a certain rabbi and say, this is our rabbi. We like this rabbi best. That was not uncommon at all. It was uncommon for someone or a group of people to latch on to a dead rabbi who's been dead for a while and not only call him rabbi but say, this guy is the son of God, the Messiah. He's the one. And, and none of you rabbis and priests matter anymore. That did not rub the priests and rabbis the right way. So you started seeing this friction. The second thing that happened was the Christians realized that Jesus came to save not just Jews, but the whole world. And so they started inviting non-Jews into the Jewish houses of worship, which was not allowed. And so uh, the Jewish people, the Jewish leadership really turned on the Christian. So mid to late first century, the Christians already had the Roman authorities coming after them. They already had to watch their back against Rome because Rome was sending authorities to drag them out of their homes and humiliate them and beat them and feed them to lions and stuff like that. And now they also have to watch their backs around their own people, the Jewish people, at synagogue, at the temple. Now the priests and rabbis are coming after them. Now their kids are being bullied at Jewish schools. Like their lives are falling apart around them. They're feeling entirely inadequate in the face of this stress. And so naturally, some of them begin to cave. Some of them begin to waver. Some of them decide, we like Jesus, we don't want to be weird anymore, though. Can we just take Jesus and make him part of our normal lives? Can we just be faithful, pious Jews and fit Jesus into our faithful, pious lives? Let's try that. And it's in the face of that movement that's happening in the Jerusalem church that this person writes Hebrews. And this guy, this person wants the Christians in Jerusalem to consider two questions. And I've got to tell you, these questions are going to be the heart and soul of our sermon series for the next eight weeks. I hope you like them because you're going to be with them a while. And I think, I think this is no, uh, this is no hyper, hyperbole here. I'm saying the meaning of life is found at the end of these two questions. Everything hinges on these two questions. The first question the writer of Hebrews wants people to consider is what makes Jesus any different what makes Jesus any different? Everybody, Christian and non-Christian, pretty much everybody agrees that Jesus was a pretty great guy. Jesus was a great man. But the truth is we've seen plenty of great men come and go. But we don't sing songs to them. We don't worship them. We don't pray to them. It would be a little strange if we sang songs to Abraham Lincoln. Or I guess you can. Maybe there is patriotic songs to Abraham Lincoln. I don't know. But I don't sing them. And uh, Mahatma Gandhi or any other great men. Why do we not worship them if they were great men, if Jesus was a great man? That makes sense? The second question Hebrews presents poignantly is what difference does Jesus make? What makes Jesus different? What difference does Jesus make? This was especially striking to me in the aftermath of Harvey. Because Harvey was indiscriminate, was it not? Harvey did not stop and ask your religion before flooding your house. Harvey flooded Christians at the same clip as non-Christians. There didn't seem to be any extra protection for those following Jesus. And in the aftermath of Harvey, as everybody came together and served and worked in shelters and, and helped each other out, I don't think it was a uniquely Christian movement in Houston I met plenty of atheists and agnostics out in Myland and at NRG and George R. Brown. There were people of all faiths and people of no faith serving together. 
And so what difference does it make if you're a Christian? Uh, there may be statistics that say Christians did more or do more generally for their neighbors than non-Christians. I'm not sure. I haven't found those um, statistics. But I guess the question is, if Christians are no different than anybody else, if Jesus doesn't make us different, then is, is this worth it? Is church relevant at all? To sit around and sing songs and give our money and miss the tailgating and the pregame, opening kickoff, and if pastor keeps going, we're going to miss the first quarter and all this. Like, is it, is it worth it if Jesus doesn't make a difference? And if Jesus is just a great man like so many other great men, is it worth it to worship him? Is it not ridiculous to sit around singing songs to just a man? It would be like sitting around singing songs to J.J. Watt, like y'all love J.J. Watt. I know you do. You might be tempted to sing songs to him, some of y'all women especially. And you, you know J.J. Watt raised $30 million for flood relief victims. Hold off on that, all right? Now, all I'm saying is it would be super weird, even given all that, if we stood up in a minute and sang, J.J. gave it all. Like that would be weird. I'd be out the door. This is my church. I'd be out the door if y'all started that business because it's weird because he's just a man. We don't sing songs to mere mortals like that. And so if Jesus is different, we need to know how he's different exactly. And if he makes a difference, we need to know what difference he makes. Those are the questions posed by Hebrews. I want to dig in real quick to the first three verses. Take them one at a time here. The first verse reads this way. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So in the past, he did one thing. In these last days, he's doing another. I want to talk real quick about last days because I can't just gloss over that. Like y'all didn't get real nervous when you saw these last days in today's passage. Because anytime you get a Christian preacher going on last days, everybody worries that he's going to start talking about rapture and the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And which countries those four horsemen stand for in the apocalypse. Y'all know that's not how, the y'all know this, right? The four horsemen of the apocalypse, they don't represent different countries today. That's ridiculous, right? Y'all know the four horsemen of the apocalypse are, they're going to be robots that we create that have artificial intelligence surpassing our own. That's going to be our demise, our hubris. Thank you. And I just want y'all to know that. I'm going to move on from that point, but y'all need to know that's what the four horsemen are going to be. That's not even the point of what this guy is saying. He says, look, there was time before Jesus and there's time after Jesus. Before Jesus, God spoke to people but with a filter. God spoke to people through the filter of the law. God spoke to people through the filter of religion. God spoke to people through the filter of the prophets, through the filters of the miracles, through the filters of the signs. So there was time before Jesus and there's time after Jesus when God has spoken himself to us with no filter. God spoke to people without a go-between, a middleman, a filter. 
And these last days are defined by that simple reality that God has spoken. Middlemen are no longer needed. I'm just here interpreting, helping, organizing a community. Please don't see me as your priest. Please don't stake your salvation on me. I sinned 40 times this morning. Like, y'all don't want to put me at the center of your faith or any man, any woman, any pastor, any priest. Because God has spoken in these last days. He's spoken himself. He's spoken directly to us. And so this author is saying, look, this Jesus, he's different. He's not a preacher. He's not a teacher, not a prophet, not a rabbi. He's not a miracle worker, a snake oil salesman. He's God. He said he was God. He's God. And that's different. Because he came here. In some dramatic revelation, God broke time in half and came here and walked among us to know our struggles himself, to speak directly to us. That is not the same, and nothing can be the same after that revelation. That's the difference Jesus makes in the mind of this author of Hebrews. Skipping ahead to the, the third verse, I'm going to break the third verse down in two halves. In verse 3, it says, the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. Glory is light. Light and heat. Sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So this author's suggestion or point is that if you want to know, if you've ever wondered what God is really like, you don't have to wonder anymore. If you want to know what God is really like, look no further than Jesus an innocent man freely giving his life naked on a cross and forgiving the people who put him there in real time. If you want to know what God really looks like, the world has already seen it. Up close and in person, the world, the, the world has seen that God looks like Jesus. Now what this would mean, if it's true, what this would mean is that it's not just coincidence that Jesus was the best storyteller in history. It's not just coincidence that this nobody from nowhere who wasn't even a citizen of his own country when he lived, like he wasn't even a citizen of Rome. He was a refugee. He was a day laborer. He was one of the men waiting outside at Home Depot this week. He was a construction worker. He's, he's nobody, but he led this global movement that today is alive and well in every corner of the world and is spoken in every language the world has ever known. He inspired the book that has been distributed and printed and bought more than any other book has in history. This author's point is that that didn't happen by accident. Jesus didn't just stumble into that. He wasn't a man of privilege or wealth or education. He accomplished what he accomplished because he's God. That's the point. That's the assertion made by this author in particular and the New Testament in general, that he did what he did because he's God. That's the answer to the question. It wasn't just a sociological phenomenon. He's God. Now, you don't have to accept any of that. This is a place that we, we intend to be welcoming towards skeptics and questions. I hope you have questions about what I just said. That's a lot to swallow what I just said, that this man was God in a way that no one else has been. Okay? 
So you don't have to accept it. But what I am going to say is if you don't accept that assertion about Jesus, then I would invite you to consider the alternative and to try and articulate an alternative interpretation of how Jesus did what he did. You see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Like, if he's not God, if, if this is not true, then what's the alternative? And I think as far as Jesus is concerned, you've probably got two alternatives. <clears throat> if he's not God, you can't ignore the fact that he's still walking around saying, hey, guys, I'm God. Nice to meet you. I'm God. Like, he's in the Gospels over and over again identifying as divine, right? So you can't just throw that out. And so best case scenario, he's a head case. Best case scenario, he's mentally ill, right? Like he needs, he needs help. Best case scenario. Worst case scenario, he's an absolute evil maniac who has duped a third of the world's population, billions of people, into giving their allegiance, their time, their money, their loyalty to some movement that's a hoax, a scam. So Jesus is a scam artist, sick in the head, or he's God, I don't know how else. If y'all want to talk about alternative explanations after the service, come see me. That's all I got. And we get to make our choice. Chapter 1, verse 3, the second half of it says, after Jesus had provided purification for sins. After Jesus had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is the culmination of this part of, of Hebrews because it really gets to the heart of the mission. It tells you why Jesus came. If anybody ever ask you why Jesus came, tell them Jesus came to give purification for sins. Your friends are going to love to hear you say that. They're going to invite you to all their parties, and you're going to fit in just, just fine. I'm just kidding. It's going to make you the weird guy because nobody talks about sin anymore. And I don't know why that is, because we all have that darkness within us. You can call it whatever you want, but I think, it's, I think the church messed up the word sin. I think the church for several generations, that's all we ever talked about was sin. Sinners, sins. Like a, I feel like when I say the word sin, I feel like, y'all, I'm gonna date myself here, but Dana Carvey on SNL, like, like church lady, you know, sinners, you know, that kind of thing. Like I, I feel like a SNL spoof of a Christian preacher when I talk about sin, because we're afraid to talk about sin. I think it's because I was reading uh, these preachers from like the 1700s and 1800s. I was reading their sermons because I'm a dork and that's what I do with my free time. And, and their sermons, they were not nice sermons. These guys, I felt like I just wanted to give them a hug and a vacation. Like they needed, they needed some time off because they were angry about sin. Like the most popular sermon in the 1700s was titled, this was the lead. The title was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now that's catchy. Can you imagine? We don't do that. We don't do that anymore. But can you imagine if we did? Can you imagine going to Barnes & Noble after the service today and going, walking past the Christian living section at Barnes & Noble and there on the book cover is, is the most popular TV preacher. You just imagine whoever you want. doesn't have to be. You can imagine whoever you, whoever you want it to be, whoever you want it to be, right? And so there they are and they've got their, they've got their look, you know, and the tie or whatever and the smile and the white teeth and the super nice hair and just like... But instead of, instead of, you know, 50 reasons why you're the best or whatever, like the title of the book is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
Like, that would not, that would not work. That would, that would not resonate with our culture today. And I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm really glad that the church doesn't do what we did in the 17 and 1800s. But I do worry that we have let the pendulum swing a little too far in the other direction. Because sin is an ever-present reality in all of our lives. It is this distant brokenness that we all feel, this disconnectedness from our purpose, from each other, from God, that affects all of us, we've all got this dark stuff. We've all done dark stuff. We've all inherited some dark stuff from our family tree. That's, that's just the bad news of it. The good news of it is that according to Hebrews, that dark stuff, your darkest stuff is the reason, the mission for which Jesus came. Your darkest ugliest stuff was what got him out of heaven and into life on earth. That's the reason he came, to deal with the darkness within you, within me. Now what I've noticed is that there is a relationship between sin and the feelings of inadequacy and anxiety that I talked about earlier. What I have noticed, it's a chicken or the egg thing. I don't know what comes first. I just know that when I am deep in my sin, I feel more inadequate. And when I feel more inadequate, I just give up and go deeper into my sin, right? If you're not careful, that's what it can be. I've seen this happen. I've seen inadequacy be the root of other kinds of sin. I've seen men leave their wives for no other reason than I felt inadequate with her and I feel adequate with my secretary or that girl on on Facebook that takes all the beach photos. I feel adequate with her. I felt inadequate at home. There is a deep relationship between inadequacy and sin and this darkness. But Hebrews says Jesus dealt with your sins and my sins and then did what? This is so key and you miss it if you just read it casually. He dealt with our sins and then he sat down. And then Jesus sat down. Why? Because there was nothing more to be done. There was nothing more to prove. He sat down when he took care of our sins. And by the way, it didn't say he took care of some sins. He didn't say that he took care of Christian sins or people who behave sins or some of our sins, our past sins. It says Jesus took care of all sins, purifying all sins. And he sat down and he sat down because that was enough. That was adequate. The cross, the empty tomb, sufficient. And he sat down. And I know that I'm preaching to the choir about inadequacy because I've seen y'all. I've seen y'all living, working, dressing, Instagramming, parenting like you've got something to prove to somebody. I've seen it. I've seen you continuing to sort of self-promote or, or, or prove yourself to someone, according to Jesus, according to Hebrews, you and I have nothing to prove to anybody. You shouldn't give one more 
thought or worry or concern to what anybody else says or thinks about you because what Jesus did for you is already enough. There is nothing you can accomplish in this life that can express any better than Jesus already has that you are enough, that you are able to rest in him. There's nothing you can do that makes that point any more than Jesus already has. He's already said you're worth his death. He's already said we are worth the blood of God. We're worth dying for. What else could possibly there be to prove? Now, some of you like Jesus, just like the Hebrews audience, you like him, but you wish he wouldn't make your life any weirder than it already is. You like Jesus, but the thought of giving him more, I don't know, giving him more seems like you'd become a fanatic and you'd get invited to less parties, people would look at you funny and unfriend you on social media and you're just barely getting by financially and he wants more of your money, you're barely getting by with your schedule, he wants more of your time. You would rather keep Jesus on the periphery and bring him in, fit him into your little messed up life than you would accept his invitation into his perfect life. You lay awake at night in that confusion, especially when things get bad. I know you lay awake at night. If that's your frame of mind, you lay awake at night and you wonder, God, why don't you speak to me? God, why don't you just tell me what to do? God, just speak to me. I'm listening. Listen. Stop waiting for God to speak to you and open your eyes. God has already spoken to us, unfiltered. He has spoken to us with sermons and parables. He has spoken to us with beatitudes. He has spoken to us with the cross and the empty tomb. He speaks to us with his spirit. Stop waiting for God to speak to you and give you direction. God has already spoken loud and clear, saying unequivocally, I love you. You're mine. I love you. You're worth it. I showed you that. He has already spoken to you and said, look, that's enough. There's nothing left to do but trust Jesus. Rest in Jesus. When you're at your weakest point is when he's at his best and I'm not saying you'll just sit around resting in Jesus for the rest of your life. I'm saying that you'll stop doing all that you're doing to prove that you're here to help, that you can be of service, that you are worth it. Like Jesus has already said all of that, and you will then serve from that place of fulfillment and adequacy because you may not be sufficient, but Jesus always is. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for those on the fence right now, people on the fence of faith who have maybe identified as spiritual people or Christians even, but have really just sought to keep you on the periphery of their lives while they try to lead normal American, you know, Western capitalist kind of lives that fit in with everybody else. God, I pray that you would give these folks on the fence the courage to make a step in one way or the other, to say, I believe Jesus, I believe you, who you are. I believe that you are sufficient. I believe you're adequate and enough. 
God, I pray that someone would take that step right now to give you everything and to know that it's when we give you everything that we experience the abundance you came to give us, the abundance of light and life and joy and sufficiency and security. Lord, thank you for these promises. Help us, even when it's hard, to trust that when things are at their darkest, you shine brightest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.